0: Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today we have the pleasure of presenting a conversation between Amy Wright and Yola, the six-time Grammy nominee who recently made her acting debut in the Baz Luhrmann-directed hit movie, Elvis, in which Yola powerfully portrays sister Rosetta Tharpe. An elder of gospel music and arguably the true originator of rock and roll while she's been a singer since four years old inspired by greats like tina turner and mary j blige this is yola's first acting role and what an incredible opportunity it was to be able to bring inspiration to a new generation of young black girls to encourage them to pick up a guitar and to go after their dreams we hope to see more acting from yola in the very near future but for now, let's hear what she has to say about her journey to the silver screen. From Diddy TV, this is Insights.
1: Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about your role as Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Elvis Biopic. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say that the last time we really sort of caught up, except really recently, was when you were here in Memphis um, uh, at Memphis Record Pressing and you saw Stan for myself come off the press. And I just have to ask you, like, what was that experience like for you? We were in the moment, but now that you've had a year to reflect and sort of think about that, like, what was it like to see this amazing album come off the press like that?
3: Um, I think uh, at the time, because I I hadn't been to a pressing plant before. And so, like, every part of it was this revelation. And so... Um getting to see it kind of become flesh from ideas that, you know, were as early as, like, being born in 2013, like, it felt like a really big part of my life that was kind of being committed to record, you know, both in the musical sense and in the historical sense. And so, yeah, that was... Like a really significant moment. It's funny, when I look back on things, I don't tend to try and aggrandize them any more than the present of the situation. Only maybe because I feel like the truth resides in being present with things. Um, But I do remember how I felt and that sense of significance of having really fought for the identity of this record, for the genre fluidity of this record, for the narrative of this record, um, having fought for people that can help me tell stories that relate to me because they have anything in common, ostensibly, um, you know, it took a lot to get the record made in the way I wanted it to be made. And so it felt like a triumph as well.
1: In the last year, um, how has that been for you? You had a Grammy nomination and, Um, You're sort of riding that wave of the album. So what has that been like for you?
3: Yeah, correction, I had two Grammy nominations. Yes, (laughs) two. Yeah, and uh, which was great. Like, I'm fully aware, and let's make no bones about this, um, that it's easy to be in a place where you assume that, because you've been recognized by the Recording Academy once, that you're going to be recognized again. And one of the things that I came to learn (laughs) was that it's actually quite challenging to get repeat recognition. And no one really wants to name drop the people that got recognized for their debut and then snubbed for their follow-up. (laughs) <laughs> and so, because that's cold blooded, and we don't do that to our, to anybody, um, <laughs> um, um, you know. And so, like, I'm I'm fully aware that that's not an easy thing to do. And so, you know, you put it out there. You say you're up for consideration for a couple of categories because that's how this works. You know, you go, hey, um, we'll, just give, we'll give a couple a go. Hopefully we get the <laughs> And we did. And that was, you know, like, that was really, really wonderful to be um, recognised again, to get the nod um, in a cycle that there are a lot of competing releases because of the pandemic, you know? Like, everyone had time to write a record. <laughs> It the only thing we had time to do.
1: Well, and there was like pent up demand and all of a sudden there's like a tsunami
3: of albums exactly. coming out. And so like all of a sudden, like, so like my cycle before was competitive because I was in the best new artist cycle with Billie Eilish and Lizzo and Lil Nas <laughs> Just a few well, names yeah. in there. <laughs> Just a few and so I'm like, okay, well, I feel comfortable in not winning this <laughs> because <laughs> I want like a teeny tiny label and they're on like majors and some of them are trust fund kids and mm-hmm. <laughs> just, they have money, you know. And so like this, is, you know, this is not direct competition by any stretch of the imagination. And so <laughs> not with resources or anything. And so like to kind of, I was like, well, You know, somehow I'm in here. I'm I'm being seen as significant in the way that I speak or, you know, in the music I make and the boundaries I try and flagrantly flout. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Um, and so to get recognized again, that was just really meaningful. I was like, okay, so it isn't just like a flash in the pan. You were interesting because you were a novelty it's like, no, we see that you have substance. And so, yeah, like that's meaningful.
1: Well, last time we talked, you basically were saying you were in such a great place. And then of course this year has been amazing as well. Do you feel like things are really kind of coming together for you on a, just kind of every level?
3: I feel as though that, I feel as though that I'm at the precipice of something else. That's really profoundly interesting with regards to my career, um, with regards to my ability to kind of be even more, have even more agency in my process. um, Yeah, I feel like I'm really at the precipice of something. There have been, there are some really interesting new beginnings um, uh, afoot. And that's just... Like, I've had some really amazing times, but I still feel like uh, like that's a drop of my potential. And that's exciting, to feel like you're six Grammy nods deep. <laughs> and <laughs> that, and recognised in so many other field, fields, awarded in so many other fields, you know, being in, like, a... Uh, um, uh, blockbuster movie that was number one in America when it was released. And, and to think that you're only here, that's
1: exciting. That is exciting. It's what everyone wants for their career, right? It's to always be um, excited about it and looking forward to what's next and constantly being challenged and taking yourself to another level. And always. Always. And uh, that's a good segue to the Elvis movie, the biopic that you were in, where you played Sister Rosetta Tharp um, brilliantly. <laughs> and um, I just wanted, and of course, there was all sorts of accolades. It was just a, an incredible movie. Um, how did you get that role? How did that
3: come about? Well, the interesting thing about it, it's not lost on me that I'm British. Um, it's not lost on me that, but, and so when I had like was auditioning for this movie. Like, I wasn't really auditioning for the movie. I was auditioning for the soundtrack. So the function of it was that you were supposed to be able to have an um, accurate voice assimilation to the to the era, at least for it to be passable. <laughs> and there's if there's one thing that I've kind of been almost cursed by is by having a voice out of time, a voice that feels like it's from another era. And like that used to make me a pariah. There were loads of people that were deemed to be super cool that have maybe that element in their voice that is begotten of, I suppose, the 90s and of R&B. And even as we move across genre, that footprint seemed to be in so many people's voices but completely absent from mine um I grew up on the same staff I'm very very, very <laughs> nice man grew up with Aaliyah grew up with Brandy grew up with all the smooth smooth voice people as well as the big voice the kind of slightly more gritty voiced people um but it didn't it didn't rub off <laughs> <laughs> and so like this voice out of time thing that for years was like, made me have to find my own space, became this massive advantage when you've got to sing songs from you know, the forties and fifties. I'm like, I could do that. <laughs>
1: You're like, yeah, I got that. Like,
3: exactly. But also um, I had what I then realized must've been a massive advantage of working for a kind of company for about maybe 16 years that did exactly what I needed to do in the recording studio. I worked for a sample replay company and they're actually quite a rare format of company. There are only a handful in the world. And I worked for one of them, the British one. (laughs) And the result of working for that, it meant that you had to Like the person that wants a sample, let's say it's just like a DJ or something. They want the energy, they want the feeling. When they cut it, like if it's completely accurate but it doesn't have the essence, the sample does not work. They need to, and you can almost convince people that it has the essence over like a minute sample. But if you're cutting two and a half seconds you know, then, you know, you need to be able to have as much belief in the essence at that core as you do across the whole take. And that skill set is identical to what we were doing when we we're tracking the soundtrack. And it's worth knowing that Baz Luhrmann is in the room for the tracking of the soundtrack, and also we track that first. So before one scene is shot we are tracking the soundtrack and that gives rise to everything else. And so, yeah, that became like this massive benefit because I'd been doing this kind of job. So I go into the booth and I kind of, I've done a bit of research on like the song and what was happening around the song at the time, given that I was already a Sister a felt fan and I was already like, ready, over, past ready, for everyone to know what I knew about her. I was (laughs) gonna say, so you
1: knew her music before all of this? Yeah,
3: by a long way, probably from my mid-teens. And so, like, you know, (laughs) over 20 years later, I'm like, I'm ready for people to know like exactly how important she is. And it's a very big part of my mission for people to know who she is. And that she invented rock and roll and we're not beating around that bush and the way that she did that was actually very specific down to being the first person to popularize heavy distortion which is a central tenement of the aesthetic to being the person who develops this blues style at church speed um so not the mo- the mournful blues tempo but the style but with the background of that church energy, that high energy. So we have the beat, we have the guitar aesthetic, and then we have her wailing. What else is left out? We're inventing a genre. There isn't anything that's been left out. That's and she coins the term in 1938 in the song That's All. And the fact that it's in a song means that you can Google it. And so, like the number of times that I'm like, so it's but that was always a big part of my mission. And so like I got it through. Not only growing up with artists like her, but also like of also say around a similar era and through the sixties and through the seventies, um, but also through this job that meant that I had to research the era so I could get into the headset, the mindset enough to deliver in a way that was really super convincing. And Baz is looking at me whilst I'm doing this, so it's it a little then- stressful. <laughs> Yeah, he's actually like nose up against the glass. Like, okay, so we want this now and we want that now. And blah, blah, blah And like, he's got a little mic and he'll do all the talk back. Okay, and we're doing this. And then, so you're getting directed, which is exactly what the job is like for sample replay. Your engineer, your producer's doing the same thing of guiding you and going, okay, I felt like it was a bit like this. Let's read about this part of their life or whatever. And, you know, you get further and further. Oh, I feel like I hear a bit more of this frequency. And so then you can talk to kind of change the shape of your vowel or whatever, but it's really specific, super nerdy work that if you've done it for 15 plus, 16 plus years, you are, you're very prepared for anything that pertains to voiceover. And so like doing that kind of had a bit of an acting element. And I think Baz saw that. It was that I was a voice specialist. I used to lecture vocal biomechanics. I was highly qualified to do the vocal job, but no one had any idea that I would be able to kind of embody her at all either. But neither did I, more importantly. (laughs) I didn't really, and so like, I auditioned for the vocal part because I I, I know that's my job, I can do that. And someone else can do the acting part. And then they look at me and they're like, no. And then look at me at angles and they're like, I think we can make you up to even look like her and you're a similar hue. Like I'm not like super light skin. Cause that's another thing that always, that's really awkward that happens in movies when they cast someone just notably more light skin. I'm like, it's okay. Like my <laughs> my parents were immigrants. My late parents were immigrants. So I'm done. <laughs> so you're not going to have that really awkward moment when you're like, Trying to almost blackface someone to get them to the hue that's appropriate. Like, I'm dark enough. <laughs> um, and I'm also a nerd of, the, of her. And like, I'm an advocate for everyone knowing about her. And so like, you know, it, it seemed to kind of end up marrying really well in the end. But like, you know, I was like, there has to be, there has to be a really profound reason for me to take this role, given that I'm British. Like there has to be. And uh, the way that I got it being based on my expertise, I was like, okay, that's validating. Being dark skin and not seeing enough dark skin plus size women in mainstream media at all. I was like, do they find somebody that's dark skin like me? And plus like me, I don't know. I don't know how often I see that. I don't think I see it enough. And so I was like, I think the number of times that I've been like, looks like it's going to have to be me is like a lot. And so when I got this, I'd never acted before, but my job had clearly given me an intro into acting that Baz saw. And it's like, no, you have been. And I was like, okay, but most of this is musical, right? Because I'm a musician. And it's like, yeah, so this is musical. I'm like, oh, I can knock that out of the park. And he's like, oh yeah, we're hiring musicians. This is what it is. You've got Gary Clark Jr. We've got people that are musicians who are nerds on her, who at least have some resemblance so that it's viable. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. This feels good and positive and great. And like he was talking about like the approach of putting Elvis's story into context of like becoming from uh, blackness, coming coming from, um, I suppose, in his living situation, the black community. Yeah, like that was a really, another really big, like exciting uh, reason to kind of be involved. The idea that, you know, the things that I'm normally talking about in, in interviews, which are, you know, this idea of giving black America their flowers for, basically the entirety of contemporary music, uh, was something that was like, I was very much going to be able to talk on in increasingly mainstream spaces. And yeah, like, I'm still doing it. It's still important to me. I'm not letting go of that kind of mission. But it all started with this soundtrack. And like, you know, my my expertise qualifying, qualifying me for that part. And then everything kind of snowballed out of that. I, little did I know that I was secretly preparing doing this side hustle for 15 years.
1: So what was it like being on set?
3: You don't really know what it's gonna be like. Like, for example, I think the most dramatic thing I can explain is the building of like, I don't know, four odd blocks of Beale Street in Gold Coast Australia, Um, like when they're constructing sets, the function is for them to be believable. Again, people don't like being lied to. Even if you're watching sci-fi, people don't like being lied to. They They don't want to have to suspend their disbelief too much. And so like, One of the things that was really notable from the efforts of C.N., um, Catherine Martin, um, was was just sheer attention to detail. We're going to research the paint and make sure that the paint evokes the feeling of the era. We're going to do research and make sure it's the same. Um, Like everything from the businesses that would have been on Beale Street, making sure that they're just overtly researched and the font that might have been used, the kind of, um, all of these things, making sure that like when there were signs, they were accurate, when there was like business names that they're accurate. Also just finding in Australia, like a plethora of black extras because it's Beale Street and it's segregation. And so (laughs) you're like, there's, this isn't, like, you may find, like, a couple white people on Beale Street, but you're not going <laughs> to find loads and loads and loads and loads because segregation is a whole thing. It's a legal thing at the time. And so, yeah, it became like, oh, God, okay, so we have to find, like, all the African immigrants <laughs> in Australia. There's not a great plethora of black people in that country. And so it was like a real hunt And so being on the set in this energy where all of these people who these kids whose parents moved to Australia um, and they haven't been in a room full of black people before. Like the energy was the same energy that we were trying to create for Beale Street, that whole high like, oh, look, we're all turned out like we're all looking great we're all going to kind of see the most iconic music being created before our eyes, like the excitement of of excellence, you know, of black excellence and being in a space where that is flourishing um, was exactly the same energy that was created from these extras being, you know, on a blockbuster movie set that has budget, Uh, And being big budget, like yeah, big budget, you know, and are being lavished with like, you know, hair and makeup. Like, we've all seen it. We've all seen the hideous black hair moments in television shows and movies where I don't know which random person they hired. clearly had zero connection to the culture because they slapped something on someone's head that looks so laughable. It looks like Tropic Thunder. And, so, <laughs> and, and you're like, you did not do that hairdo to that person. How dare you, it's almost a hate crime. How very dare you. Like, like it happens so much. And so when you, it was just like, okay, these people are experts. They've crafted, it's so meticulous. Like, I can't tell you the, the power of attention to detail about their hair and makeup team. Like, yeah, the set design, the build, the costume, everything was so fastidious that you immediately don't question anything you're looking at with regards to its validity you're just, it, it almost in a ironic thing, it's almost as a result, it then gets out of the way, and because it's believable, so you go, great, I believe you, done. <laughs> you accept it, it, it permeates, and then you are just, it's just you and the performance, and it's, it's instead of it being this stick in the mud of, I'm really trying to get into this performance, but I can't get past this wig, and so <laughs>
1: Well, you you almost have to believe in, in the set as well. So that, like you said, you, you can get do. past that. Yeah.
3: It's not CGI. Like, mm-hmm. it's a real set. It's like, you look at the street and the pavement. They built it. The pavement wasn't there. The street wasn't there. None of that was there. But they built it with their hands. Like, after, like, maybe a gazillion blocks, like, we're going to, project some CGI back on the black boot, the blue board at the back, but there's, there are blocks and blocks. <laughs> and so it's just sprawling and impressive, like the work, the quality of the work, you know? And I'm a big potter head. And so if you've ever been in London and you've been to the Warner studios there in London, <laughs> because you know, this is Warner's and like, they, they they clearly mean it when they're doing sets. This is not a part-time set kind of company, so I've discovered. But you go there and you see the Harry Potter um, sets and all the props and everything, and you see how much work that time is. Intimidating. Like, when, they, when I went with a set designer friend and she broke down the timings, I was like... Like, <laughs> it, it literally will make your brain explode, even if you're not even into Harry Potter find someone who's a set designer, walk through the Warner Studios and they will explain exactly how profoundly, like, mind-blowing the work is. And I felt like that on this set again. It was like, like, the the the, the research, the accuracy, like, <laughs> like, all that nuance to make something feel effortless. And then, like, with costume, they're putting it on your body. So they want to, your body and it to kind of work in concert to be believable, (laughs) like there's there's so much art that goes into this and like, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're literally bathing in art. Well, you know,
1: I had the pleasure of seeing you just recently at a really intimate concert that Marriott put on at the Memphian in Memphis and the tiger tiger and peacock um, up on the roof. And a handful of us got to see you not only seeing songs from Stand For Myself, but also from Sister Rosetta Tharp. And um, I was blown away by both. Um, I can't remember exactly the names of the songs that you sung that were Sister Rosetta Tharps, but they were incredible. Um, What was it like to do a performance like that in front of such a a kind of a small group in that setting?
3: I haven't done like a small gig like
1: that in
3: years. That's what I was
1: wondering, yeah, I bet not.
3: Like, look, maybe, like, the last time I did something that small was Tiny Desk, you know? (laughs) And so (laughs) it felt a bit like that, in a way, that kind of creating a vibe in a small room like that. Um, But also, like, I really like to kind of just inform people about just this idea of legacy. And so... Every time I do something like that, it's an opportunity to speak to people who, I can be relatively confident, don't know how important Sister Rosetta Tharp is. And so like I get to, I have the privilege of being able to use my, oh FYI, I used to be a lecturer <laughs> um, in vocal biomechanics. And the result of that is that it becomes really like pleasurable to be able to play the songs of Sister Rosetta and to speak about her and her importance. And to, because of the movie, I've done more research and to be able to just share that with everyone. Like, performances are very much like a very much sharing discipline of the arts. And so, yeah, like doing a performance like that and being able to just share everything that you picked up whilst making this movie um, is, like, you know, it's so highly motivating for me. The more people know, like, just that she discovered Little Richard, for example. That's something I I said, and people were like, oh, I didn't know. I'm like, you would have never had him. And if you didn't have him, like, you wouldn't have Prince. And if you didn't have Prince, then... Maybe even bands like Parliament Funkadelic would have sounded different because they were the same era. They were definitely influencing each other. And obviously Parliament were definitely influenced by rock and roll as well. And so that's two prongs. And then they've affected their era in the 70s, least of all all the rock and roll from the 50s, 60s and 70s. And so then you're like, but didn't hip hop sample from both in that time? I'm like, yeah, so that gets hit as well. And then <laughs> you're like, But then aren't the people of nowadays really like reprising 90s aesthetic? Yes, they are. So your Childish Gambinos, your Beyonce's, a a massive chasm is lost because of the sample era. Um, And so you think about what happens if we don't exalt the name of people like Sister Rosetta, is that we then don't get the things that come on from that and if people don't know that they have ownership of rock and roll, then, or of or any space that they inhabit that isn't conveniently in this narrow box that gets afforded to blackdom, <laughs> um, then we, don't, we lose those stories and we almost don't know what we lose but like I kind of phrase it as a man in the high castle situation. But instead of Nazis, it's like, instead of the Nazis winning as opposed to losing, it's losing rock and roll and the sheer blast radius of the damage of that loss. And we don't know what we're losing. We don't know what money we're leaving on the table when we exclude the narrative of black America. Um, Like from a foundational standpoint. Um, And so like, That's when I go into rooms like that and I get to speak to people, I'm doing my little bit to give black America their flowers. I'm doing my little bit to redress a gross imbalance. And that's the most loving thing that I can do as far as I'm concerned. Well, from the
1: standpoint of someone who was in the audience, I felt like I walked out of there um, knowing so much more about sister Rosetta Tharp, that it, I came home and actually did more research myself just because yeah. I wasn't as familiar. And so uh, for that, I'm really appreciative of being there and listening to the story. And um, and listen, I know we don't have any more time here, but I want to tell you that uh, I think you're um, definitely on that precipice of um, all sorts of amazing things. And, and we can't wait to be there along with that journey for you. And, um, I'm so happy that you were able to join us today and talk about the movie and yourself and amazing music you're putting out there. So we wish you the best and we'll see you very soon, Yola.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy.
0: All right, folks, that's all for today's show. Thanks so much to Yola for taking the time to connect with us and share her story going from meager beginnings in small-town England to becoming one of the world's most notable musicians, and now a Hollywood icon in the making. Whether it's music, motion pictures, or molding the minds of young musicians, Yola's a truly expressive and brilliant artist whom we recommend you continue to support. A great place to start? Stand for Myself, her 2021 album release. Available now at EasyEyesound.com. From all of us at Diddy TV. Thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights.
3: 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite
4: athletes
0: only,
3: right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial.
4: At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right.